Welcome to Equinox, where Rob and I are striking the balance between the light and the dark. This is episode 24. My name is Joseph Darnell, and I'm joined by my good friend, Dr. Robert Carter. Hello, Rob. Hello, Joe. I am really excited to get into this episode because this is just an interesting subject. I think everybody will enjoy. Not as complex as some of the other subjects. So we know everyone, sometimes the the topics have to get down into the weeds and really scientific and it's tough. But as I'm editing the shows, I, I can keep up, especially all the good shows, all the episodes are really good. And I'll listen to some of them twice. But this is one I think that is going to pay off the first go around. Wouldn't you say? I think so. And we're going to stay away from the heavy chemistry, but as much as we can. Yeah. But first, um, you have a new book. I do have a new book. Remember last week we said, hey, what book projects are you working on? I forgot about this one. I'm so excited. <laughs> you had too many book projects on the table. You just uh, forgot about the book that was coming out right now. Well, this one was slated to be the guidebook that we handed to all the participants in CMI's Egypt tour, which is about 300 people signed up for our tour. And so we're like, wow, we got to do something. Let's write a guidebook. And so it's like, you know. 200 pages or something like that. I haven't actually seen it yet sitting on my desk in the office and I haven't gotten to see it yet. But it, it, it turned into a very interesting history of Egypt, how it compares to the Bible. And I was brought in because the boss asked, hey, how do you get the pyramids built if they got built right after the Tower of Babel? How do you have enough people? So I said, oh, let's do it. Let's, let's run some population growth studies and see how many people you need to build the pyramids you know, 10 or 20,000, how large a population you need to support that, you know, a couple hundred thousand to a million, and how long would it take after Tower of Babel to have that many people? And hey, you can build a pyramid at that point. And we fit it. We fit it within biblical history. And honestly, both of us were shocked. Yeah. Now, what's really unique about that, if I understand right, is that the point of time is not the time that a lot of historical Christian cultural research suggests. It's, it's a little bit different, right? Yeah, what we did was we said, let's forget archaeology for a moment. Let's just look at the Bible and let it tell us when these things happened. Now let's look at Egyptian history and see how it correlates. And we took the worst case scenario. Let's say, let's use the Masoretic text because that has a shorter timeline than the Septuagint text. And we said, let's use a short sojourn because people argue how long the Jews were in Egypt was it 430 years or 215 years? That's two century difference. So let's take <laughs> a short sojourn and a Masoretic chronology. And if we can fit Egyptian history into that, it's even easier if a scholar wants to stretch it out to use the long sojourn or the Septuagint timeline. And we think we did it. And we think we've got the Exodus to within a, a pretty good ballpark. Like this is probably the, the Pharaoh of the Exodus, but we're also advocating that people don't take a hard line view because we simply cannot know Egyptian history is not nearly as clear cut as what is presented on the History Channel or by some you know famous Egyptologist. Hmm. There's a huge range of debate. And in fact, most of the debate is in the earliest time periods. Like they, they say there's this, this whole entire dynasty, but they only have the name of one king, one pharaoh. And they don't necessarily know how it overlaps with another dynasty. And they base all of the dating on carbon dating, which for the creationists, they would say, well, carbon dating gets further and further off the further back in time you go because of the effects of Noah's flood and the, de the decreasing strength of Earth's magnetic field 
means that the further and back in time you go, the stronger the magnetic field was, the less cosmic rays are getting through, the fewer carbon-14 atoms are being formed. So any tree living right after the flood will be anomalously older because it'll have less carbon-14. It'll look older than it really is. Hmm. Etc. Yeah. And then Keaton Halley pulled out an unbelievable, and we stuck it in the book as, as a, a long chapter. He looked at the history of Egypt and Babylonia in the prophecies of Daniel. You know the very confusing section, the king of the north shall rise up and he shall... <laughs> da, da, da. Yes. It's like, what? A Tricky stuff. Well, not only did he identify all this stuff, he put in pictures of the marble busts of all the people that Daniel was going to be talking about in the future. Oh, nice. All ah, in the book. I've never seen anything like that. I had no idea you could do that. So, very excited about this book and I hope we sell lots and lots of copies. Sweet. Well, it does sound really good. That's one of those things that I don't think everyone, well, I think everyone takes for granted nowadays that we would have all of this stuff well outlined, well preserved. We can translate all the ancient languages, have it all figured out. The historians wouldn't have as many debates as maybe the scientists over hot <laughs> topics like evolution. And, and you'd be very wrong. Oh, yeah. It's really complicated. And one of the big problems with Egyptian history is that Back in the early 20th century, the Egyptologists got together at a conference and they arbitrarily decided to change all the Egyptian dates and they changed them away from the biblical dates. And because Egyptology is such a powerful field and it developed before Assyriology or Hittiteology or Holy Land archaeology, they really are the, the big guys in the room. And all the other ancient civilizations, their dating scheme is based off of Egyptian dating even when there's conflicts. Hmm. So a lot of the other ancient civilizations have things that connect them, and they both or three of them together might disagree with yeah. Egypt, but Egypt, Egypt wins. Oh, it's so annoying. <laughs> it's totally annoying, but you know, people. Yeah, what can you do? Oh, they're listening to the show. We need to be careful. <laughs> yeah, all these Egyptologists that listen to Equinox. <laughs> I'm sure they do. <laughs> well they do now yes well you heard it here first folks we are going to talk about probably i want to get to our main subject just because you did warn me that you've got a lot to say i don't know of anything else going on is there anything else going on in the world in the last week nothing important right like just, n just nothing beirut yes which was the nucleus of this discussion right pretty big now I suppose everyone listening was aware that about half the city of Beirut was leveled by a giant explosion. I found out the hard way. I was browsing social media and I saw the video appear and automatically start playing. And I was expecting something random and to just let it go. And then I see the flash and then I see the smoke. It, 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 it's honestly it's hit me really hard because I was not expecting it. Wow. How did well, you come across it? I'm not sure because I've watched every single video I could find. And I keep, mm. every day I go and I look for new ones. So here's one that's the closest. They're the farthest away or the person on the boat, person in the car, person at the wedding, person in the balcony, the other balcony, the other balcony. And I'm watching it from all these different angles because I'm trying to figure out the physics of it and the chemistry of it. And I'm looking at the sequence of events. And just today I saw one that started earlier. Most of them, they start when it's already this big black plume that then explodes. But this one started and it showed the formation, the first black plume. There was an explosion and then another explosion. Hmm. In fact, I think there are three explosions. 
Right. There's a lot of smoke and the warehouse is intact. And then the first explosion that makes the, the big black plume, when, a, when the person you know, stands up again, they look back at the warehouse, the sides of the warehouse are blown out. <sighs> and then you see all the sparkles, which right. could be a lot of different things, probably not fireworks. And then the big boom that makes the orange cloud and then following that, it looks like almost instantaneously following it is the supersonic shock wave that makes the cloud as the air compresses, the water moisture uh, makes a cloud and as it, that rockets across the city, blowing everything out at supersonic speeds. Mm. Wow. It, it, yeah. Mm. And poor Beirut. The thing is, is that we see a lot of this sort of thing in entertainment, you know, action adventure flicks, but not in the real world. We know that they happen, but they're like yeah. black and white footage of some sort of like test explosion or something like that. We don't see a lot of the real world stuff really impacting no. people. Beirut, there are a lot of Christians in Beirut. There are Druze in Beirut. There are, you know, of course, Muslims in Beirut. But I did not see a single hijab. Amongst all the women in all the pictures, the one woman who's in her wedding dress, she's got, you know, she's covered with white. She's a beautiful woman. And all of a sudden her world is just destroyed by this, this blast. But that's not a hijab. That's just a wedding gown. Mm. I mean, the women are dressed Western. They're not in, in spaghetti straps and bikinis, but they're dressed like Western people. This is not like Saudi Arabia. This is not Iraq. This is not Iran. This is a country that has been very strongly influenced by Europeans, I mean, forever, since the Crusades. You know, very, real tight ties to France. And just the, the thought that these people have been laboring under evil governments for so long. Yeah, it's and rough. The, I mean, they've been beat up. They've been, all their stuff's been stolen. There's a bunch of thugs running the country constantly. All this foreign money pouring in, causing more and more corruption. And then just to see their city blown up, that mm. just stinks. Yeah, but it did get us the thinking that there is a lot of science that goes on for weaponry and explosives. And in general, it is an interesting subject and it goes back thousands of years. Not as, not as many thousands of years as you might think. Oh, okay. We do, but we do know that like weapons go way back. Yeah, weapons, of course, go back to the beginning yeah. of man. Yeah. Pretty How do I kill technology. people with this sharp pointy thing? Yeah. Right. But the first explosives, as far as we can tell... Only go back to about the ninth century. I remember that one of the odd things about watching the Lord of the Rings movies and being introduced to the books around the same time was how there is that one battle where there are some explosives used. And the idea in the context yeah. is that it takes the the human race. That's, you know, the, that's man's the battle army. of Helm's Deep, of course. <clears throat> right. <clears throat> well, I mean... <laughs> Yeah, I didn't want to confuse our <laughs> listeners that haven't read the book. Oh, sorry, I don't want to go all ter Tolkien nerd world because I'll get lost in there for a long time. Anyway, <laughs> I would too. <laughs> so when there is the explosion in the context of the story, it takes everybody by surprise because it's something in their universe that isn't common. It's a new yeah, idea, never seen it's a new technology. And I imagine that had to have been the feeling of people in the real world when you see something go off with like you know, gunpowder and TNT type stuff must have been yeah. nuts. But actually, the funny thing is gunpowder and TNT, both of them, the explosives were, had a different use before they realized the stuff would explode. Really? Yeah. What, what I just realized that. Just realized that. So you're saying basically the exact same substance that would be used for something completely different. Yep. 
but two different cases, two different chemicals and a thousand years apart. Huh. Let me guess. Um, a, dude, I cannot think of anything that they would have been used for besides exploding things or setting things on fire. In ancient China, what we call gunpowder was invented as a medicine. What? <laughs> what was some serious antacid there? <laughs> <laughs> the problem is it had things like arsenic and other toxic chemicals mixed in with it also. In fact, early European formulations of gunpowder had completely worthless arsenic. Why would you put arsenic in it? It doesn't do anything, but they included it anyway because they were following a recipe that they got from somewhere else. Wow. I'm so glad the medical profession is better today. <laughs> uh, yes, 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 yes. In fact, I just wrote an article today about um, the pangolin for a book that we're writing, one of our books, an animal book. And I had to mention that pangolin populations around the world are decreasing rapidly because of traditional Eastern medicine uses pangolin scales. I think it's a healthy thing, but it's made out of the same stuff your fingernails are made out of. You might as well just eat your fingernails. <laughs> and so, you know, strange Eastern medicines used gunpowder before they realized it would burn real fast. And then somebody must have put it in a container and realized a container blew up or something shot out the container. And that was somehow the invention of the firearm. Huh. Wow. And the ingredients are really simple. It used to be you could go down to your, your grocery store. In fact, I did it once here in, in Georgia. And you can buy all the ingredients for, for gunpowder right off the shelf from the pharmacy. Well, it, would you draw? Wouldn't you draw attention to yourself if uh, no, back guess, in eighties? Yeah. Back in eighties, you wouldn't. Early nineties, you know, pre nine eleven stuff like that. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that these ingredients have been removed. But a lot of people were making their own gunpowder. You know, black powder enthusiasts, old old wow. rifle enthusiasts, and just you know, kids who like to blow stuff up. Like <laughs> me. <laughs> yeah, oh, you. <laughs> oh, and one of our hosts. But it's a very dangerous process. If you're making your own black powder you're likely to blow yourself up because you have oh, to grind yeah. it and you have to grind the ingredients together to mix them such that they burn real fast. And the ingredients are so simple. It's just sulfur, charcoal, and something called saltpeter, which is salt potassium peter. nitrate. And you can get saltpeter from some rocks. You can get it from chicken poop and bat guano. And it's, it's something that's there <laughs> in nature if you know how to find it. And those simple ingredients mixed together tend to burn real fast huh. and produce a lot of heat. That is kind of weird. <laughs> it, it is really weird. But what, what it is, is it's an oxidation reaction. In, in chemical reactions, you have something that's stealing an electron from something else. So oxygen makes things rust. I mean, that's where we get the idea from. Oxygen steals electrons from metals huh. and makes them rust. And it's, it's something that you want to control, but in an uncontrolled sense, you can get a very hot uh, chemical reaction. And in the case of explosives, the, the products of the reaction tend to be gases, and hot gases expand really quickly, which is what happened in Beirut. Mm. So the things we use as explosives, they, they usually go to gaseous form, from solid or liquid form to gas form, and if they're hot, they expand rapidly. And that's, that was the genius of gunpowder. You take, and it, see, the funny thing is, it's not any charcoal. It's specific trees that they would target. Some trees are just not worth it, but charcoal from specific trees had just the right porosity that when you mix the potassium nitrate, the saltpeter in with it, 
it would absorb into all the pores. And now you have something with a very high surface area that can burn charcoal mixed in with an oxidizer, saltpeter. A little bit of sulfur in there for effect. And you have something that will flash when you heat it up. Hmm. Crazy. So 9th century China, they invented gunpowder. And it wasn't long before it reached Europe. Maybe, you know, two, three hundred years. And it's in Europe. And the Europeans start inventing firearms and cannons. But those early versions were just ridiculous, you know, inaccurate. Oh, wow. They, t- they tended imagine, to blow yeah. up. And you don't want to pour gunpowder into a hot gun. That's really a bad idea. So you have to wait for the thing to cool off. And if you don't wait long enough, you know, oh, the cannoneer just blew himself up again. <laughs> so they're super dangerous. And, you know, they're smoky and stinky and noisy. And they had a pretty good psychological effect. But as far as the, uh, the military effect, they really weren't worth very much yet. Not yet. So I want to talk about a famous battle. Please do. This is one of my favorite battles in world history. It is the Battle of Agincourt in 1415 in northern France. Okay. This is in the Hundred Years' War between England and France. And for some strange reason, the French nobles who became the English nobles decided that they want to keep their land back in France. But King John from the Robin Hood fame, King John, his nickname was Lackland, he lost the land. And all of a sudden, England only had land in England, and the English wanted it back. (laughs) So they kept on fighting the French. So the Hundred Years' War, um, there's a whole bunch of battles, the Battle of Cressy, the Battle of Agincourt. But Agincourt was was spectacular for one reason, and that was the English longbow. The English longbow. There's a thing. It's called U, Y-E-W. It's a tree, and it makes a really, really stout stick. And if you string a string on that, it makes a really good bow. In fact, when you look at the skeletons of medieval longbowmen, their bones are distorted because the amount of pull. I mean, I couldn't bend one of those bows. There's no way. You have to be really strong and work at it your whole life to get to the point where you're accurate with it. That whole Robin wow. Hood scene, Robin Hood would have looked a little funny. His right arm would look different than his left arm if he was really an archer like that. But the weird thing about this battle was that it occurred, I don't know, 100 years or so after firearms were introduced. But the turning point of the battle was the bow and arrow, not the gun. This is immortalized in Shakespeare's play, Henry V. And if you've never seen Kenneth Branagh (laughs) in his depiction of Henry V in that movie from like, I don't know, 1989 or something like that, it's one of the, the, the best acting jobs ever. It is genius. And there's awesome. a shot in this movie where after the battle, because the French had snuck around and killed all the boys that were, you know, the pages and, and things like that. They weren't soldiers. They were unarmed and they killed them. And Henry V finds one of the boys and he picks him up in his limp body. And he's cr- the king is crying. And he starts walking across the battlefield for like 10 minutes. And he's still walking across battlefield with dead people and burning things. And I mean, the set was amazing. It was huge. And he just keeps walking, walking, walking. It's his, <laughs> and his, his St. Crispin's Day speech. Yeah. I mean, Kenneth Branagh is a genius. He's just one of the best actors ever. And that, that was the best portrayal of a Shakespeare play I've ever seen in, the, in this movie, Henry V. But it's portraying the Battle of Agincourt. See, what happened was... 
Henry V wanted his land back, and so he's going to go, I'm going to do another wasteful spending spree and raise a bunch of money and go over to France, and all my guys are going to die. Again, like what happened to every other time? <laughs> and so they do. But he also builds a bunch of cannons and firearms. He's got gunpowder-fueled weaponry. But there was another town that they had invested in, in a siege and conquered, and he left his cannons and most of his artillerymen there and went off to, you know, fight in other places in France. But his army was being whittled down by disease, and he realized that he had to hightail it out of there. So he tried to get back to that town that the English owned for a very, very, very long time. It's the town that the English were going to invade, but psych, we went to Normandy instead. <laughs> it's to the northeast of Normandy. So they had to hightail it to Calais, an English occupied city, but the French cut them off. And the problem the English were having is 80% of the army was unarmored bowmen, and they're fighting the heavy cavalry of the French, a tried and true battle-tested group. I mean, this is the one of and probably the strongest army in Europe, and they're going to get destroyed because unarmored guys on a field have no hope when there's a line of heavy cavalry barreling down against you, there's nothing, you're just gonna die. Except that 80% of the army that were bowmen had the English longbow. And the pull on that was sufficient enough that an arrow could go through plate armor. Wow, <laughs> that's pretty good. And what happened was the flower of French nobility, not the king because he was insane and he was. You know, in somewhere else, the, the army is being led by one of the nobles. There's rumors whether or not the Dauphin, that's the, 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 the boy who's going to become king later, was there or not. He did, he did die later or here. And, you know, history is really murky about this, probably because the French don't want to know if he actually died in the battle or not. Mm. But, but the French on horseback charge into a storm of arrows and they're slaughtered. And it's like three to one, the, the, the size of the armies. There's no way the English are going to win. But the French get decimated by the arrows and the English win the most lopsided battle with outdated, antiquated weaponry. And yet it's a turning point in, in, in world history. And it's just such a cool story. Yeah. It's gross and it's, it's bloody, and it, but it's fascinatingly interesting. Because why on earth did they not have rifles or not have rifles? Why didn't, why didn't they have muskets? Why didn't they have blunderbusses? Why didn't they have cannons? <laughs> well, because gunpowder is a lousy thing for the field. You know the uh, the mm. phrase "keep your powder dry, boys." You probably heard right. that in a movie or you know uh, Revolutionary War history. Um, right. If gunpowder gets wet, it doesn't fire. So if it gets wet, can it be dried again? Yes. And how, I imagine that's a sort of a tricky process. Well, how does it hold up in humidity like down here in Georgia? It, it doesn't. It's terrible. Uh. It's really problematic. This is why we have replaced gunpowder in and bullets and cannons and you know things like that because it's lousy it doesn't work well plus it smokes too much especially they invented smokeless powder in 1800s great but before that it was so smoky and iffy and it didn't burn all the all the way properly this this one reason why you, the formula was so critical because it had to all burn almost instantaneously or it fails and then you have a bullet stuck in your rifle or you have a mortar with a with a round in it, and you have to get it out. I mean, it, it's it's a pain in the neck. And the interesting thing about gunpowder is, unlike that blast in Beirut, 
gunpowder expands when it blows up slower than the speed of sound. Yet a bullet coming out of the end of a rifle is traveling faster than the speed of sound. Most rifles, you might be able to get a subsonic round, but they're rare because you want power behind your bullet. You want to go fast. It's coming out the barrel faster than the speed of sound. How can something that expands slower than the speed of sound create something that goes faster than the speed of sound? Yeah, that's kind of interesting. You put it in a narrow tube under a lot of pressure and you let the bullet accelerate. So the bullet is accelerating from the time that it goes off till it gets out of the barrel. Yes, it's getting faster and faster and faster through the barrel. That makes a lot of sense. Because you would think once it's out of the barrel, it begins to slow down. Yes, it begins to slow down instantaneously. Yeah, okay. And, but you want the speed and you want the bullet to spin, which is why rifles are so important. Oh, there's a story in the Revolutionary War. It has been disputed. I don't know if it's true or not, but the story goes like this. During the Battle of Saratoga, where the famous Benedict Arnold had defected and went over to the British, and Washington's like, we're doomed, man. Benedict Arnold's an awesome general. He's over there. Well, I don't think it was, he didn't die at this point, but the British were lined up and the leader of the British forces was exposed well out of musket range. But there was a guy there with a Kentucky double rifle. Wait a minute. First of all, a rifle. Second of all, a double rifle. <laughs> Two barrels. And the American commander said, do your duty, son. He goes, yes, sir. And he goes up in a tree and he rests his barrel on the branch. He steadies it and he bullseyes the British leader, kills him. And the second in command runs up to give assistance and he takes him out too with the second barrel. Yeah. Mm. And that right there, if it's true... Change uh-huh. world history because the, the, the Americans then go to win the battle. And if they hadn't mm. won, there might not be an America today. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So gunpowder, man, the history of gunpowder and, and rifles and bullets is really amazing. And I love the story of the Battle of Agincourt uh, because of that. But arrows did eventually get replaced. And probably because bullets are cheap, it's easy to make a bullet. You pour lead uh, into yeah. a mold. It's pretty simple material. Yeah. But to make an arrow, you need a Fletcher. Have you ever heard of someone with the last name of Fletcher? Yeah. Yeah, their That's ancestor was from? Yeah, it was an arrow maker. Because fletching is feathers. Nice. And it's quite an art to making a good arrow. And it took a lot of work and a lot more time than it takes to make a bullet. Plus, you got to train bowmen. You got to train them for a long time. You got to practice, 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 practice. But it, what, takes five minutes to learn how to shoot a rifle? And an hour how to point it accurately? Especially back in the day, just like just like you know, bow and arrow, that whole Robin Hood scene—that's ridiculous, man. They even though they were practicing archery, the tactics on the battlefield were mass artillery barrages. You know, in the movie Three Hundred, we'll block out the sun with our arrows. Oh yeah, well they will fight in the shade. <laughs> you know? Right. <laughs> it it wasn't like one guy aiming at another guy. It was a hundred or a thousand guys aiming up in the air in the general direction. Same thing in Braveheart. You know, a storm of arrows coming down. The same tactics were used with early firearms. Even the Civil War, I mean, you have all these guys, and there are three ranks, one on the ground, one kneeling, one standing, and everyone's shooting, boom, 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 boom. But they shoot all at the same time to make a wall of lead. And I don't remember what it was. Someone calculated how many pounds of lead were expended for every battlefield casualty in the Civil War. It was a lot. Wow. It was like you know, three that pounds, ten pounds. Be- because most of the time, the muskets hit nothing. Most shots are... Completely worthless. Cannons, man, they, they obliterated people. But muskets usually did nothing until they got close. So 
probably the ease of training a gunman and the cost of production of arrows, even though a gun is a lot more expensive than a bow, the bullets are not. Bullets are dirt cheap. Hmm. And so it's probably economics that led to the changeover. And especially as guns got more powerful and more accurate, that would, would really cause a lot of problems on a battlefield. You do not want to be a knight sitting on top of a horse in a gun battle. As oh, the Charge of the yeah. Light Brigade found out the hard way. What an amazing story. What an amazing poem. And what a sad tale. Miscommunication on the battlefield. And the Light Brigade decides to charge against the Turks. And they got obliterated. And a few of them came, up, came back. Probably one of the late, probably the last great cavalry charge in history. Because wow. you don't charge against machine guns or accurate oh, no. rifles. Oh, no. <laughs> so I've gotten to go into a cave in West Virginia. I've been in there twice. Okay. And it's and a really cool place because there are Civil War relics in the back of that cave. Really? Still left there? How Still so? there. Um, Why well, would they be left in there? Well, because no one took them out. But they're there <laughs> oh, okay. because there were a couple of hundred men living in that cave during the Civil War. They weren't deserters. They were gunpowder manufacturers. But this is West Virginia and the people in the cave were Southern soldiers. They were in enemy territory. Yeah. Huh. And there was a Yankee encampment on the hill above them. And they were there wow. three years in a row, all winter long, and never got caught. Wow. But they were there because of the bat guano. Oh, I see. <laughs> centuries and centuries of bat poop building up meant there was a lot of nitrates in the soil. And what's left over way back in the cave are a whole bunch of wooden troughs where they would take the dirt, the bat, you know, degraded bat poop, and wash it and concentrate and get the crystals of potassium nitrate out, a saltpeter. And that cave was a source of probably 75% of the saltpeter using all the gunpowder in all the southern armies. Wow. It was in Yankee, it was in Yankee territory. <laughs> I'm sorry, this is the funniest thing. You dumb Yankees, don't look in the cave, man. <laughs> And the last year, they weren't able to get back into the cave because the battle lines had changed so much. But, and what they would do is, um, in the, in the late at night, they'd have all their bags ready. Someone would come in with a, with a wagon. They'd throw the bags in a wagon and just whip the mules and take off and try not to get caught. And they never did. Amazing story. Wow. <laughs> so why did they leave the things in there? I would have just assumed historians and museums and archaeologists would want that stuff by now. Collectors, even. Um, yeah, in fact, um, there is a, uh, using a candle, Robert E. Lee made his initials on the cave wall in the <laughs> sun. Not during the war, before the war. He had visited there before the war, so that's why he knew what it was there. He sent his guys up to mine the saltpeter out of the, out of the cave. Oh, wow. Cool. Totally huh. cool. Neat history. And it's the history, again, of gunpowder and how important it is and how hard it is to find the ingredients and how easy it is to make. And yeah, you do tend to blow yourself up when you're trying to grind this stuff, but you have to do it that way. Hmm. But gunpowder was eventually replaced. We use much better things. Wait a minute, I haven't heard about this. We don't use gunpowder? We don't use black powder anymore. Oh, okay. We use other things, other accelerants, other explosive mixtures. They can be gunpowdery, but TNT is used in artillery shells and nitroglycerin has been used a long time in different, for different formulations of different, basically most of the things that we use to blow things up have nitrogen in them because nitrogen likes to rip electrons off of other molecules. <laughs> 
Wow. And so the first thing that that started to replace gunpowder, at least as far as blasting is concerned, was called nitroglycerin. Glycerin is a three-carbon atom, and if you stick nitrates all over it, you have nitroglycerin, which is extremely unstable. If you drop it, it blows up. If you heat it, it blows up. Lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of people have been killed accidentally by nitroglycerin. But it was the first thing we discovered that expanded supersonically. So gunpowder is an explosive, but other things are high explosives. A high explosive is something that the, the cloud expands faster than the speed of sound. And nitroglycerin was the first one. Now, you've heard of Alfred Nobel, the Nobel Prize? Yes, of course. Well, he invented something called dynamite, and he made a ton of money off of it. He also invested in some oil wells around the Caspian Sea that one of his, his brothers had invested in. So the, the, you know, the, starting from dirt poor, the Nobel brothers eventually got really, really filthy rich because dynamite was a top seller. What he did was he took, I think it was diatomaceous earth, and he soaked nitroglycerin into it. So he stabilized nitroglycerin. It didn't blow up on a whim, and now you could ship it, and you could store it. It was still dangerous. You had to be careful with it. But it wasn't going to, it's not like, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not this monster that's ready to, to jump out of its cage at any instant. It was something that was much more controllable. But what happened was one of his, I think it was his younger brother, got blown up in a dynamite factory in the nitroglycerin shed. He and like four or five other guys blew up. And a French newspaper published the wrong, what's that called when a person dies? They put it in the newspaper. Obituary. obituary. They, they published the wrong obituary. They published his obituary instead of his brother's, and they called him a monster. You know, the angel <laughs> of death and what? Because he invented something that killed a lot of people in war and in, in in accidents. You know, mining and whatever. And he was so upset by this, he he donated all his money and started the Nobel Prize Foundation. So the Nobel Peace Prize, the Nobel Prize in Literature, the Nobel Prize in Science. These are all started by him. And the reason that the Nobel Prize Committee is in Scandinavian countries is because that's where he was from. Interesting. Cool. Yeah. Around the same time that nitroglycerin and dynamite's being invented, there's a lot of other chemistry happening. And a lot of other things are being invented that are replacements for gunpowder. And the most important one is TNT. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, try nitrotoluene. It was actually invented as a dye, not as an explosive. It was a couple of decades later when someone realized this stuff would blow up. <laughs> That's hilarious. Oh my word. But it's kind of obvious. It's, it's got a bunch of nitrates and O3s attached to a carbon ring. Benzene is a circular six carbon atom. Uh, toluene has a, an extra carbon sticking off of it. So that's, toluene is not what gives you cancer, benzene would, because you can't get rid of it in your body and it, it sticks into DNA and it's really nasty. But toluene has an extra carbon and your body can handle a lot better. But when you stick a bunch of nitrogens on it, you got something that's packed with a whole lot of energy and that's used today extensively. TNT is used in a lot of different applications. It is a, a high velocity um, exploder. And in, it has a lot of power in it. And in fact, it's so important that we measure nuclear weapons in the equivalent of TNT. You know, a kiloton, a megaton. Interesting. That's, how we, that's what we say about nuclear weapons. That's 
a kiloton, a thousand tons of TNT would produce this size explosion. And so the, the Beirut explosion was about the size of a, a tactical nuclear weapon, maybe five or 10 kilotons. So we have a way of comparing explosions for nuclear weapons, ammonium nitrate, and dynamite and TNT. We just do use you know, the equivalent of TNT. It's a rough calculation. It's nothing exact, but that, that's what they do. I want to take a step back and ask you a question All right. about TNT, dynamite, nitroglycerin, gunpowder. Generally speaking, you were saying that some of them are, what is the one? Is black powder the one that replaced gunpowder? No, black powder and gunpowder are the same thing. Okay, so what is the one that did? The one that replaced gunpowder? Yeah, you, you, you referred to it several minutes ago. Well, okay, well the thing is, gunpowder doesn't really have a definition. So its formula ingredients could be updated, and it's sort of like yeah. the new improved formula. Okay. E- exactly. We use a, a, a very different gunpowder in bullets than black powder. So you can't really call them the same thing. They, they have similar ingredients, but one of them, the new one, doesn't smoke and has got better expansion properties and is more stable, etc. So uh, of all these products, in and of themselves... Like, what are the top four, top three uh, most explosive just properties in and of themselves? And in what order would you rank them? Would nitroglycerin be number three and, you know, TNT number two and um, dynamite number no, one? No, some of the, the, um, the, the new, um, sorry, I'm Googling here because I don't know the, the names of things like Chemex and, and, and things like that. Oh, that's um, fine. See, so linked to the Explosive Act of 1875. Um, I don't know. Okay. I, I can't answer the question. So do any of these work better in, I don't want to say wet and, you know, getting wet, but moist environments or with a chance of getting wet, is there one of them that still works even if it gets wet? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, one of the top explosives today is called PETN, pentaerythritol tetranitrate. Ooh, it still has nitrate in it. And pentaerythritol, yeah. again, is a carbon contaminant carbon-containing molecule. And it's more like a plastic explosive and it's extremely powerful. Um, It's got Semtex in it. So yeah, I just looked that up on Wikipedia, uh, but it does not at all surprise me that that is uh, is one of the things. So when you say plastic explosive, you mean it's a kind of of plastic that explodes? Or do you mean it blows a plastic? No, it's more like like a clay. clay. It's very easily workable and moldable and it's stable. And it doesn't, you know, it's not going to, it's not going to flash on you like nitroglycerin would. So would that be the kind of substance that I've seen them use in the movies when they're like trying to real quick, you know, some spy is, you know, trying to put together a detonator on a superstructure and he takes some clay and yep, he... exactly. And he puts a detonator in it. Yep. Yeah, and he puts a detonator on it, mashes it against the post. And runs a wire somewhere or a timer. Oh. Yep, exactly. And there's, there's a lot of different ones. But I'm looking at the, the list of um, on Wikipedia, table of explosive detonation velocities. Oh, we got to um, put that in the show notes. <laughs> oh, yeah. The first one is 135 trinitrobenzene. Well, that sounds like TNT, trinitrotoluene, but you get rid of the extra carbon in the benzene ring, and now you have trinitrobenzene, and it expands at 7,450 meters per second. That's more than half a mile in a second. <laughs> wow. You're going down... You know, four four dinitro three three diazinoforoxane. Hey, I thought we weren't going to get into the the highfalutin chemistry. Well, that one expands at a kilometer per second. Wow. Trinitrotoluene, the TNT is the fourth one on the list. 
So even though some of these things might expand faster than some of the modern explosives, we don't necessarily use them because of stability, availability, um, toxicity, things like that. So yeah, that's why I didn't know. Omodium perchlorate, that's, that's a common thing in the blasting caps or the uh, percussion of a, a rifle, I think. Hmm. You know, methyl nitrate, nitroglycerin is down there. Yeah, all sorts of cool chemicals. Oh, mercury fulminate. Ooh, mercury, blah. Nickel, lead. <laughs> I see all sorts of toxic heavy metals. And right at the bottom is ammonium nitrate. It expands at 2,700 meters per second. So a quarter of a kilometer per... Oh, wait, no, 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 no. Dumb, dumb, I'm stupid. 2,000 meters is two kilometers. Yeah, I was wrong about the, the first one. 10,000 meters is 10 kilometers in a second. That's six miles. Wow. <laughs> but ammonium incredible. nitrate is uh, 2.7 kilometers at 612. That's about one and a half miles in a second. Now, it probably wouldn't get a mile and a half away because the, it, the power is going to diminish. And eventually, that shock wave is just going to diminish. But in the Beirut blast, we saw it because people were pretty close. And we saw that shock wave just expanding rapidly. Oh, terror. So here, I got another one for you. What are we typically using? I know this is a little off the beaten path, but I still think that this is something that would be pretty interesting to the topic. Uh, what are we using in firecrackers and bottle rockets and things like that? Uh, I think just gunpowder. It might even be old-fashioned uh, black powder, but it, it, it might be a little different. I, mean, I remember as a kid, we'd un- unroll all the unpopped firecrackers and, and we'd pile up all the all the gunpowder, we'd make it flash all at once by straight throwing a match at it. Oh, I wasn't a pyro, but I sure was interested in in conflagration, shall we say? <laughs> I mean, just just the chemistry, the blowing upness, and I never figured out those those pop rock things, those those things in the little the little bag that look like a seed and has some yeah. white rocks in it. And I, I know I've looked up the chemistry of it a couple of times, but it just always baffles me that these rocks would blow up. But it's because what they're coated with, not the rock itself. Okay, uh, related to this question, following up, this past July 4th, I was with family and we had some fireworks and they were prepackaged ones that you should be able to light on one end at the fuse and it'll uh, one by one fire off different fireworks until it gets to the end. So I imagine there's some sort of like system of a fuse that winds throughout the box and fires off different firecrackers one at a time. Yeah. Well, um, something malfunctioned and basically the whole box blew up at the same time. <laughs> so yeah. how does that well, happen? Um, lots of different problems with firecrackers and fireworks. Because well, here's what I'm picturing. I'm picturing all these unique chambers that have their own pockets of gunpowder. And there's the fuse yeah. on one end of the package where we lit it. So I just don't understand how they all went off virtually at the same time. Quality control, man. Uh, whoever wound all those little fuses at the factory, some probably some slave labor Chinese person um, just didn't do it right. Or gunpowder <laughs> got spilled in there. Or, you know, who knows? Any, anything can happen. The, the fuse science is not, you know, computer science. There's an art to lacing a piece of paper with gunpowder and, and twisting it so that it would burn at a certain rate just doesn't always work like you expect interesting okay the, um <laughs> i grew up in um on long island and on the north shore closer to new york city was a uh, the grucci fireworks family 
and they were the premier fireworks people in the world. And so, you know, we go watch a Mets game on Labor Day and there'd be a Grouchy fireworks display. I was like, ah, and so we had great fireworks growing up. Now everyone's got good fireworks now, but back, back in the day, they were the, the people that watched. But um, their house blew up once, their, their factory, and uh, several family members were killed in the explosion. Wow. <laughs> because gunpowder is dangerous. Yeah. And even if, I don't know if they were using gunpowder for everything or what they might have been using, but back in the day, whatever they were using was unstable. And something happened and people lost their lives. Mm. And it's been happening ever since we've been playing with, with explosives. People blow themselves up all the time. In fact, ammonium nitrate, any number of, 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 of bad things have happened with ammonium nitrate. I mean, a ship in Texas blew up in the early 1900s. There was a, uh, um, a lot of farming accidents. In fact, when I was, um, my first job out of college, I worked at a greenhouse. There's also a seed company. I wouldn't mention the name because the, actually the, well, I shouldn't say that either. Well, maybe I will anyway. The owner went to jail for murder and I saw his wow. picture on the front page of the paper several years after I didn't work there anymore and my mouth hung open. I was like, what? Yeah. So anyway, um, this, this company had a seed catalog and I worked at the greenhouse and plant nursery in Atlanta and one day the boss not not that guy but the the boss of the uh, of this location told these these other two guys take all those bags of fertilizer in the what in a greenhouse and throw them in the back of the van and put them over here so they did on a hot summer day oh, okay they didn't make it across the parking lot before they had to jump out of the van oh wow the fertilizer which had you know ammonia nitrates and whatever else in it one, it was so hot that as soon as they moved the bags around, they oxygenated it and it spontaneously caught fire and burned the entire van down. Wow. I mean, you saw an engine block and a base of a bunch of black stuff that used to be the van and 20 pegs of fertilizer or whatever it was. Now, they were lucky that it didn't actually blow up. It just burned real fast. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, definitely. Whew. So, we have this ammonium nitrate now uh -huh. that tends to blow things up and the story is that it was being stored i mean this whole you know story of this company in mozambique wanted ammonium nitrate to make industrial explosives which are used all the time in mining and whatever farming and plus it can be used as fertilizer too so they ordered it from um some place in russia or georgia something on you know, the east side of the the black sea and on the way to mozambique the ship didn't have enough money to get through the, the Suez Canal. So they said, okay, let's do an, an extra stop. And they're going to stop in another port and pick something up and drop it off in another, another port. And meanwhile, they had, they had problems with the ship and it broke. So they, they, they limped into Beirut Harbor with no money. And they can't leave because they can't pay the port fees and they can't pay their employees and they're stuck on the ship and there's no food and they, they got no money. And like, we just want to go home. And they're caught in this never, never land of international law. And so eventually the port of Beirut sees the ship, sees the cargo, brought the cargo, put it in the warehouse. But it's more than that because there's international terrorism ties here. This, is, this area of the harbor in the ports area is controlled by Hezbollah. And they have found packets of ammonium nitrate in England. And they caught it during a raid and in Germany. And one of the leaders of Hezbollah is saying that he's going to blow up 
Haifa, one of the main ports of, of Israel, either through you know, driving a ship over there and blowing a ship up or tipping a bunch of rockets with ammonium nitrate and raining them down on the city and obliterating the city. Mm. And so there's you know, a lot of international espionage and intrigue, and I don't know what the real story is, and I don't think anyone ever will. But this was not a good situation hmm. to have this stuff sitting in its warehouse for like six years with an unstable government with all the bribery and all the terrorism connections yeah. and foreign money flowing in and the threats from the religious leaders. And it was just a disaster waiting to happen. And hmm. people pointed it out, multiple people, the people in the port wrote letters to the government saying, get rid of this stuff. This is not safe. And nothing ever happened. And so the government of the country just resigned. The president and the cabinet just resigned today. Amazing. Yeah. Wow. Well, then if they hadn't, I bet they would have been murdered. <laughs> I'm, uh, I mean, yeah. that's a good way to diffuse a little bit of the situation because the people are mad and rightly so. I mean, all yeah. these people died and their city was blown up and they've been through enough stuff that they're just sick and tired of it. And yet they're, they're stuck in this oppressive regime. Right. Hmm. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap up then. What do you think? What do we got here? You got 57. Yeah, I'm, I'm stretching it. I'm trying to think of things to say for a couple of more minutes. You want to talk about? No, no, we, no. Ask me the question it. about nuclear weapons. Yeah, And okay. we'll say, oh, we'll, we'll do another episode on nuclear weapons. But we can talk a little bit about nuclear weapons. Sure. So then what about nuclear weapons? Everything that we've been discussing has been the hands-on stuff, but surely there's a lot more to be said about those. There is, but there's actually one more explosion to talk about before we get to nuclear weapons. The largest man-made explosion prior to Hiroshima happened not long before Hiroshima in England, and it killed John F. Kennedy's brother. Oh, okay. Huh. Oh, now I'm going to use a bad word here, but it's the title of a book, and it's what they called themselves. It's called The Bastard Brigade. This is one of the best military history books I've ever read, and I read a lot of military history books, and it is fascinating. Have you, have you seen the movie or heard of the movie, The Catcher Was a Spy? It does ring a bell. I think my dad may have talked about it once. I don't okay. think I saw it with him. It, it's a cool movie based on real events, you know, historicalized or, or Hollywoodized, I should say. But Mo Berg was a professional catcher in the major leagues. And he spoke a bunch of language and he was, shall we say, um, hard to pin down as far as what his preferences were and his, where his loyalties laid. So he made a great spy and they sent him the OSS, the, uh, the pre-CIA government during uh, governmental organization during World War II is called the OSS. They sent him to Europe to kill Werner Heisenberg, one of the greatest physicists of all time, because they didn't know if he was working on the Nazi atomic bomb. He was, mm. but they didn't know how far along he was. He, he was extremely arrogant and he could not believe that anyone as far as it got as far as he was, but he was just dabbling in these little teeny experiments. And so Moberg literally went through enemy lines, got to Switzerland where he, uh, Heisenberg was giving a lecture, sat through his lecture, had a gun in his pocket, met with him, talked with him and decided not to shoot him. <laughs> what a story. In the meantime, nice. though, John F. Kennedy and PT-109 gets himself crashed by a Japanese ship with his crew and he wins all these awards because he's you know on this dis remote south pacific island with these guys that are injured and he is swimming between islands at night risking himself getting killed by japanese or eaten by sharks 
back and forth and he rescues all of his men and he's you know wins all these awards he's a super war hero but that's the little brother joe kennedy didn't want JFK to be president. He wanted his older brother to be president. And the older brother's like, dude, my, my little brother just won all these awards. I need to do something famous. He's a, a fighter, uh, not a fighter. He's a bomber pilot in Europe. And you know, bomber pilots are a dime a dozen. There's a couple thousand of them. So he's not doing anything distinguishing. He volunteers for a secret mission. And the secret mission was to blow up what they thought were the... Uh, V2 or V3 rocket launching sites in uh, German-controlled or German-occupied Europe. And it was in a concrete bunker, and there was a door, and you had to fly a bomb through the door, which was impossible. You, we didn't have radio-controlled anything yet, and bombing was just totally inaccurate. I mean, if you're bombing a city, you bomb a city. You don't bomb a target. Most of the bombs dropped in World War II did not hit the target they were aiming at sometimes by miles, because wind and this and that and that, you know, it's just, it was hard to do bombing. My grandfather, by the way, was involved in one of the bombsite manufacturing things, but okay, that's another story. Um, mm. So JFK's older brother volunteers to fly a bomb that is packed to the, a plane that is packed to the gills with explosives. I mean, to get from the pilot's seat to drop out of a little hatch on the bottom of the plane, you had to squeeze through the piles of explosives and then jump out the bottom and parachute. Because what they figured out was they had this American who invented radio-controlled flying, but they couldn't take off or land under radio control. But once in the air, they could control the flaps only. And so the three degrees of freedom, you can control the, the yaw, the pitch, and the roll of the plane, and they could fly a plane from another plane. It was genius. But think about it. This is extremely primitive radio technology. If there's any noise, like if you fly past another radio signal, the circuits aren't good enough to discriminate between this, the, the signal coming from your control plane or the ground, and you can randomly trip circuits. And on the way out, he had to lift a card between these two metal things and then jump out the plane. When those things touched, that's when the thing would blow up. Well, he didn't make it. And it was the largest pre-nuclear explosion in world history, man-made. Mm. And it burst windows on the ground, you know, in this large area of England. They heard it from for forever far away as this plane blew up and killed the older brother of a future president of the United States. And his wow. father didn't even know. I mean, the pre, he was the, the ambassador to England, and they did not tell him what killed his son. And we didn't learn until decades later when the doc documents are declassified. Wow. So highly recommend the book, The Bastard Brigade. In fact, I listened to it on a long car drive and I was riveted. It was amazing. But it talks about a lot more than just that because it talks about the Americans pr producing the atomic bombs. And probably if we didn't think the Germans were pursuing it, we wouldn't have spent all those millions and millions and millions of dollars doing it ourselves. Yeah. But it was the fear that the Germans were going to get it that made us do it. Right. Wow. Amazing stuff. How's that for an ending okay. point? Yeah. Wow. An incredible episode. All right. We're going to continue from there, probably talking about the other bigger firepower next time. Oh, we can talk about uh, atomic bombs next time? Yeah. Let's do it. All right. I'd, like ask, I mean, I'd also like, if you know anything about torpedoes, I'd like to understand the firepower of submarines. Oh, sure. Torpedoes are amazing, complicated, 
And the American torpedoes, the first half of World War II, were terrible. <laughs> yeah, can you go back as far as the Civil War? I know that they had some submarines. I'd just be curious about what they did for weapons. I, I don't know what they could have done. Yeah, or or um, was it Decatur? I'm going to get myself in trouble. You know, damn the torpedoes full speed ahead. Yeah. <laughs> that was uh, the Battle of New Orleans, I believe. And there was torpedoes in the water. Oh, he said, forget it. Go anyway. and Let's take the city. Well, a torpedo back then was a bomb on a stick that was stuck in the mud. <laughs> it didn't fly by itself or you know, travel by itself through the water. Well, thank you so much for joining us on this quest. You'll never see the world the same way again. That's a reference. I swore in this episode, Joe. I, I used bad <laughs> language. I can't believe it. But it's history. So, you know. So pardon me, everyone, for the hard language of this episode. Well, <laughs> I can always bleep you out too, you know, so oh, okay. So you, we just want to keep the rated G, right? Yeah, let's keep it rated G. <laughs> if you want to dig deeper into any of this subject material, you can find links to stuff that we discussed uh, and all those wonderful things that Rob introduced us to in the show notes on our website. They're available at nightowl.fm slash equinox slash 24, because this is episode 24. If you're in your podcast player, the show notes are also with this episode in the app on your phone. You should also check out biblicalgenetics.com where Rob is uh, producing his other project. Biblical Genetics is also available on Facebook and YouTube where you can watch the video and join discussions in the comments. And if you want to find me, I'm at JCS Darnell on Twitter. And if you want to, we will put a link to the book in the show notes so that you can uh, check out that Egypt tour book. Until next time, goodbye, Rob. Goodbye, Joe. You have been listening to Equinox. Equinox.